Hey there, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick, exciting announcement to share with all of you. For the first time on Time for Coffee, we have a free giveaway to offer you. In honor of the season of giving that we're all immersed in right now, I am so excited to tell you that Time for Coffee has 50 global giving gift cards with $25 already loaded on them to give out to Java junkies between now and Christmas. In case you're not familiar with global giving, it's the largest global crowdfunding community connecting nonprofits, donors, and companies in nearly every country around the world. These gift cards will make wonderful stocking stuffers or thank you gifts or secret Santa presents to give your colleagues or your professors or guidance counselors, your mentors, your mailman, you get the idea. Even that cute guy or girl you want to get to know better but don't want to give them something romantic, at least not yet. The way these gift cards work is that you can redeem them by going on to the Global Giving website and picking any of the hundreds of different amazing projects Global Giving is featuring in countries around the world. Then your $25 gift card can be used to support any of these projects. And the gift card is non-denominational with a super festive holiday vibe. And all you have to do to win one of these electronic gift cards is to email me at andrea at time the number four coffee.org. That's Andrea at time the number four coffee.org. Just say, hey, I'd love a global giving gift card. And the first 50 people to hit me up for one of these gift cards will get it in their email box on Monday, December 17th, giving you plenty of time to figure out who you want to give it to. Thanks so much, everybody. Happy holidays and enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel. And it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so glad you press play. If you're interested in breaking into the world of advocacy, changing government policies, and maybe even getting new laws on the books, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is someone who's doing that right now working in Washington, D.C. for a global nonprofit. And spoiler alert, she started as an unpaid intern and has a ton of advice to offer as to how you can break in and break through in your internship applications. But before I introduce you to Emily Schaefer, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter we blast out Monday mornings, giving you an overview of the episodes we're going to be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. And while you're there, scroll down to check out the rest of the homepage, which has all the episodes we've already dropped, organized by profession. So it's super easy to search the kind of professionals who most interest you. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious hot caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is 
Emily Schaefer, an amazing young woman I had the pleasure of working with very closely, I might add, for about four years at Mercy Corps, one of the world's leading global humanitarian and development organizations. Emily is currently a policy advisor on the policy and research team in Mercy Corps' Washington, D.C. office. This is actually one of the first T4C interviews I ever did back in the spring of 2018. And as you'll hear, we actually met in person for our caffeinated career conversation. Emily is one of my all-time favorite people. She is funny, humble, super smart, and incredibly hardworking with a can-do attitude that is her superpower. She first started working at Mercy Corps in 2013 as an unpaid intern and so impressed us all that I soon hired her to be my executive assistant and the office administrator. Today, Emily is a first-class policy advisor and someone who has a ton of wisdom and insights to share with the Time for Coffee community. I'd say a normal day for me is coming into the office, uh, catching up on the news, catching up on my email, seeing what country directors have sent me, seeing what is trickling down from kind of the upper echelons of the organization, what uh, emails I need to answer. Then it's meandering and about town, going to different meetings, meeting with other folks in the NGO sector, at coalition meetings, meetings on Capitol Hill, meetings with the executive branch, coming back to the office, writing different materials, writing petitions out to our grassroots supporters, um, writing briefing materials for my boss, all types of different things. Give me a sense of what's in your portfolio in terms of the, the issues that that you manage for the team and kind of Take us behind the scenes on like something that you're working on right now. I cover quite a few different things and some of them are not quite connected to the other. So I cover refugee policy for us. I cover youth and gender development finance. I work on budget advocacy, so working through the appropriations process and seeing how we can influence policy and funding that comes from that. I also work on some humanitarian crises, including Myanmar, Bangladesh, as well as the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Central African Republic. So holy cow, quite a few different <laughs> things. There's been a huge learning curve, I think, on all of those every day. I'm still learning. So when you say there's a learning curve, mm -hmm. what does that mean that you've had to do to feel more comfortable managing this diverse set of countries and issues and priorities? Like, are you reading yeah, so all the time? Are you reading outside the office? Are you meeting with people to pick their brain? Or, you know, what all is of, it? All, I mean, really all of those things. You know, it's a lot of it's a lot of reading. For example, like I studied the Middle East in college and now I'm working on issues in Asia and issues in Africa, both of which I'm not as familiar with. So it's a lot about reading about those country contexts, reading about how these crises came about. Because at Mercy Corps, we care a lot about the root, like addressing the root causes you can't adequately advocate on like figuring out the root causes of a conflict if you don't know anything about you know the country itself. So reading is really important, but also figuring out kind of what discussions are happening in DC. So it, you know it's like catching up with people after a working group meeting or grabbing coffee with someone because you know what happens in the news is kind of a week behind what conversations are happening. I think in rooms around DC, it's all of those things. So what's at the top of your 
to-do list today. So we have our country director from Myanmar coming into town in a couple of weeks. So I need to start setting up meetings for him so that he has a good trip to DC and that he can meet with the correct people to influence. So today... You're going to be sending out those meeting requests. Can you just give us the, the yeah, so, offices or rough ideas? of? Yeah, so we're going to be sending out some meeting requests to some folks at the State Department, some of our funders, as well as some kind of political minds there, as well as USAID. We're hoping to meet with some folks on the Hill. Right before that, our Vice President of Policy and Research is going to be doing a briefing on Capitol Hill, focusing on Myanmar and Bangladesh. And so all of this is kind of, I have to prepare her as well. We're going to try to meet with some folks from think tanks, Maybe do a briefing for the other NGOs here in, based here in Washington. I have to set up some internal meetings just because everyone wants to meet with the country directors when they come in from out of town. It's a long trip, and so we want to maximize the time that he's here. So when you're thinking about like the meetings to set up, Mm-hmm. For example, on Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. what are the criteria that you're looking for in the staff and the offices that you select? So I'm looking for people who, for offices and staff who have been engaged in these issues previously. This country director is only going to be in town for two days. So we've got a really limited window. So we can't take him around to cultivate champions, I think, at this point. So now we're looking for members who have co-sponsored legislation or been very vocal about the crisis so that they can get kind of a picture from the ground of what's going on. Are there going to be specific asks that you go into those meetings with? Absolutely. Give folks an idea of what an ask might be. I think not an easy one, but um, an easy one in in this kind of situation would be asking for more social cohesion funding. There are groups kind of pitted against each other. And so we could go up to Capitol Hill and ask for more funding for kind of the funding streams that fund that type of program. And then at USAID or the State Department, you know, we can emphasize how these programs are really working and why they should why they should continue to program these types of programs. Does Mercy Corps currently have funding to do sort of conflict mitigation work or peace building work in those contexts? Like, what are you drawing from as evidence that the that this type of programming works? So I can use another example of where we're drawing from evidence, and that's in the Central African Republic, in CAR, as it's known. We had this great program, and it, was, it actually wrapped up a couple of years ago. We did a conflict mitigation program in the midst of the crisis in 20, between 2013 and 2015. We did a baseline survey, and then we did an endline survey after the program was over. And we found a 532% increase in trust between opposing communities. And we saw that fighters voluntarily put down their weapons, gave their weapons away in order to lead and participate in peace committees because they wanted to bring peace to their community. And that's like that's the type of evidence that we like to draw from in all of these contexts as much as we can to show that these types of programs work. Just so our listeners know, I mean, what I'm trying to do, there may be some of you out there who have experience in advocacy work. I think we are speaking here to those who don't. Mm-hmm. And so to give you a sense of what a policy advisor will do. So Emily was just like setting up meetings, but then you're in the meeting. Take right. us into the meeting with your country director, in this case from Myanmar. How is a meeting run? What do you do? And then how do you prepare the country director so that you know at the end of the meeting you will hopefully have accomplished what you went in to achieve. So preparing for the meeting, 
we like to sit down with our country directors and we like to develop these asks before they get to Washington. They come out of a combination of what the country director is looking to achieve and what we as Mercy Corps here in Washington are looking to achieve. As an example, you know, our, our country director might be looking to program some type of program and he can't find funding. And so we in DC are like, well, we can kind of, you know, help help trace that line through Washington and down to your country context, insert country here. All of that kind of feeds into the talking points that we develop before a country director comes to town. And we sit down hopefully for an hour or two, but when they get here to go through all of the meetings that they're going to have and identify you know, which ask kind of matches with it each meeting. And we go through all of the questions that they might be asked, you know, what's on the top of their minds? Is it, are they going to be asked about sanctions? Are they going to be asked about an election here? Insert country X here. All of those kinds of hot button issues that maybe the country director isn't thinking about in the context of a humanitarian or development program, but is important because we need to, we need to seem relevant. We need to, we need to be relevant. So then, you know, before a meeting, We'll go in and we'll you know sit and quickly go over what does a staffer, what does a USAID staffer, what does a State Department staffer, what does a Capitol Hill staffer need to know when they walk out of that meeting? And like we need to make sure that we communicate that point to them. All the other stuff is kind of not noise, but a little bit of noise. And that's what they need to walk away with. So then in the meeting, if I've set up the meeting, I'll run the meeting and I'll introduce the country director and the country director will talk and give a 15, 20 minute overview and then give the staffer a chance to ask questions because often they haven't been to that country and they really want to know what's going on on the ground. In that conversation, we need to make sure that we infuse our talking points. So that's either if the country director doesn't do it, then that's my, that job falls to me to do that. Then we just do that for a marathon of <laughs> two days to a week. I should say to people, maybe I should have said this up front, that you and I used to work together. This is true. So I'm asking some leading questions. <laughs> just a bit. Just a bit. <laughs> and another function of your job has been creating, writing a policy brief. Why don't you tell folks what that is? It's a document that we can leave behind in a lot of different circumstances. We can send to people. It's a great way. A country director may only be here for two days, but a policy brief is something that we can leave behind and they can have a paper copy of it or an electronic copy of it to kind of refresh their memory and remind them why they should care about our issue. So it really needs to outline in a very clear and concise way what the problem is and what our suggested solutions are. It needs to be short, sweet, Policymakers don't have a ton of time. The staffer is just given like 20 pieces of paper. And all of these papers are, you know, like one sheet of paper with different asks on them, but that's a lot of paper for them to go through. Um, are you saying that one organization is giving them 20 pieces? No, no, no. Like, it'll like... be like a coalition meeting okay. and I, the different people in the coalition will bring different pieces of paper. Then they have menu of options to choose from. But it's really important for whatever you're writing uh, to be very concise and very clear because staffers don't have a lot of time. They need you to get to the get to the point quickly and clearly. How do these meetings help in terms of building lines of communication between particular offices? And why is that so important? I'm I'm thinking, like yeah. you mentioned, how you pick the offices that would be most important to bring your Myanmar country director to. But there's a longer relationship. Mm -hmm. that goes beyond Myanmar that can also be enhanced. Right. So, for example, appropriations, I think the, the relationship is especially important. I think the appropriations process is one of the few processes that move on the Hill every year with like consistency. That's one thing that we can kind of engage in all the time. And that's a relationship that we want to continue 
We want to continue to build relationships with appropriators and appropriation staffers because we want them to know us and we want them to see us as a value add to their work. We want them to know that they can trust us, know that when we can't tell them something, we will be honest about that and that they can rely on us for smart, relevant, true information. Another tactic that people in the policy influencing space try to use is, for example, if there's going to be a hearing or maybe even Mm -hmm. encouraging staffers in an appropriations function or, let's say, Senate or House Foreign Relations or whatever it would be totally. to have a hearing. Yeah. Yeah. So like you want to be the person that they call when their boss is like, we want to have a hearing on XYZ issue. We know that we've seen you guys up on the Hill over a long period of time and we know you're very active and vocal on it. We want you to come testify. It's a great way to raise your profile in addition to being a great way to inform members of Congress and inform a broader community of people who are interested in foreign policy issues and inform U.S. policy writ large. What's the hardest part of your job? I mean, I think the hardest part is wrapping your head around all of these issues. As I mentioned earlier, I kind of cover a broad range of issues. And a lot of them are things that I never thought I would be working on ever. And so learning and getting up to speed and being able to sound remotely intelligent in a meeting takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of preparation and it takes a lot of willingness to know that you're not the smartest person (laughs) in the room. I think that's kind of the hardest part and, you know, jumping around from issue to issue and needing to flip your brain from one thing to another in 15 minutes can be tough, but we do it. (laughs) And what do you enjoy the most about your job? I mean, I think it's two sides of the same coin, right? Like I love learning new things and I love challenging myself to learn new things. To be a PhD, I could never do it. Like I could never focus on something, on one, one, issue. one issue for that long. And so getting to do this policy work, I get to switch my brain off of one thing. And when I'm stuck on one thing, I can move to another thing because there's no shortage of things to work on. <laughs> so again, part of full disclosure, Emily and I work together. I know her background pretty well. <laughs> and you should know if you were to click on her LinkedIn profile or just do a little basic digging that Emily only graduated from college five years ago. It's pretty amazing what you have accomplished in just five years out of school. When you were at McDaniel College majoring in political science and international studies, did you know what you were what you wanted to do with the degrees? No, I actually knew that I did not want to do anything related to Congress because I was not interested at all in Congress. And here I am, which is kind of hilarious. I was getting close to senior year. I knew that I wanted to do something in the humanitarian international development space. And I wasn't sure about what that would be or what that might look like. And I thought I'd go to the field and work for a couple of years. And I saw myself as a very like international person. I really enjoyed my time studying abroad. And then I realized that it was going to be impossible for me to get out to the field with only a bachelor's degree. And so then I kind of pivoted and I was like, oh, I'll work in D.C. because that's the closest city that has major international things happening and applied for a ton of jobs. So let's I want to get to that. In yeah. A second, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was it that happened that helped you to realize that doing international development was something that you were interested in? I think it was kind of a core value that had always 
been instilled in me. I grew up going to church and my church had a heavy service component. So I volunteered at a school in the Appalachian Mountains for kids who had been like abandoned or abused. And I volunteered at a summer camp, kind of renovating the summer camp one summer. And there was a trip that we went on. It was called Christian Citizenship Seminar. And it was kind of, you know, how to take your faith and turn it into something that was more meaningful for the world. And it focused on uh, human trafficking. We went to New York and did some meetings there bus down to DC and lobbied on Capitol Hill to end human trafficking. And I think all of those components mixed together made me want to have kind of a bigger meaning. I wanted to be, I wanted to do something that was mission driven. And so now I've kind of removed the faith part from it. But I think that development was kind of the closest way that I could mix this like desire to serve others with my career interests, relating to foreign policy and wanting to expose myself to different cultures around the world. Going back to your senior year and you're realizing that it's going to be hard to get into the field, which is our slang for going to work for a country program Mm -hmm. or an organization that's working in a foreign country. And so you're going to focus in D.C. Mm -hmm. How did you start knowing where to apply and what were you applying for and how many different organizations did you apply to? I have no idea how many organizations I applied to. I started by, I met a customer at the farmer's market that I was working at. And he was like, oh, my wife works for this company that does international development. Like you should apply. And I think that was one of the first jobs that I applied to. And I don't even know what it was. Couldn't tell you. I looked for anything that said assistant in it in the title because I figured that was my level. I started looking at contractors that served USAID. So like a lot of U.S. government positions aren't actually filled by U.S. government employees. They're filled by contractors. And so I thought that that was going to be a way to kind of get my foot in the door. So I applied to a ton of those and was trying to like figure out which contracting firm staffed which parts of USAID and the State Department, which was kind of tricky. And I refused to apply for any internships because I decided that I'd already done an internship. And so I didn't need to do that anymore. And then I got desperate and started applying to internships. (laughs) But yeah, I just worked in the morning. I had a job picking blueberries in the morning and then I would come home in the afternoon shower and start applying for jobs. And that was when you were in college or that was? Uh, That was the set. I was like kind of applying for things my senior year, like the end of my senior year, but I was way too busy with writing papers. Um, And so that was really the summer following my graduation that I kind of got into it. So at what point do you remember that you were like, I think I better start applying for internships? So blueberry season comes to an end at the end of July, kind of early August. And so as blueberry season was winding down, I was like trying to figure out how I was going to transition into a new job or something. And I decided that I just needed to move out of my parents' house and move to D.C. I had my own personal reasons for wanting to move to D.C. So that was, I was kind of like, I just needed an excuse and I've saved money all summer so I can afford to go find a place and intern and hope that someone will hire me. And if not, I need to start waiting tables. So it was like end of July, I think early August, I applied to a couple of internships. And then I got two interviews on Capitol Hill and one at Mercy Corps. So I scheduled them off the same day. And I went to an interview on Capitol Hill. And it was probably the worst interview I've ever done. It was not good. And... (laughs) 
why what made it I, so I was not I was not prepared and I, I you know way? they gave me some questions that were like not critical thinking questions it was just kind of like listing off leadership and they were very fact-based questions and I had not prepared for that and as I mentioned earlier I had kind of zero interest in Capitol Hill at that point. There were probably some other students or recent graduates that were much more qualified and who would have enjoyed it a lot more at that point. And then I went to my interview at Mercy Corps and our old colleague, Carrie, asked me some really tough questions and I was challenged and they made me think. And I just felt like it was a good environment for me. But it was a different type of hard questions for Capitol Hill. Yeah. They resonated um, with you. Yes. I'm going to this meeting later today with a Republican member of Congress and the Syrian conflict had not just started, but was really starting to get pretty bad. What would you tell him to solve the crisis or to like mitigate the impacts of the crisis in Jordan and Lebanon? And my answer was not great, but it was just that kind of question that made you really think critically that I was like, this is going to be a good environment for me. And because you were in particular interested in what was happening in the Middle East. Yeah. That must have resonated <laughs> yes. With no, you. definitely. I was, I had studied the Middle East. I had studied abroad in Jordan. And so I was, I was like, oh, these, these people care about the things that I care about. And it's always good to be surrounded by people at work who care about the things that you care about, of course. So, so we're going to give the punchline here. You got the job. You got the job. You got the internship. Yeah. And I can speak in a moment from the perspective of somebody who was on staff and who interacted with you when you were an intern. But can you talk about what you were doing Mm -hmm. in the internship to make an impression on people around you? Because I assume that you... We're yeah. doing your best to try to influence, to yeah. try to make a positive impression. I actually went into the internship with little to no hope that there would be any chance of getting hired. You know, my parents asked me pretty much every week. They're like, are they going to hire you? Are they going to hire you? Are they going to hire you? And I was like, no, they're not going to hire me. There are no jobs here. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't work hard and you shouldn't deliver your best work. So I just tried to work fast. I tried to work fast and I tried to work smart. I tried to listen and kind of absorb as much as I could. I mean, I just tried to kind of keep my head down and do the best work I possibly could. What do you mean when you say you tried to work smart? I mean, I think that there's a a balance between working quickly is really important, I think, in the policy world. Like you need to be able to deliver something to your boss very quickly because things move very quickly. But the flip side of that is you need your bosses to be able to trust the work that you're giving them and trust that you're delivering them like the correct information. For me, it was kind of figuring out what that balance was between kind of throwing something on an Excel spreadsheet, but also making sure that it was factually correct so that my boss didn't go into a meeting looking silly because I hadn't done my due diligence. I think that that's really important. I know because we've had many interns work at Mercy Corps, certainly on the policy team, that they're not getting busy work. They're getting the real deal. That was really cool. I had had a couple of internships before the internship at Mercy Corps, and I often felt like I was just getting busy work. You know, there's, you joke about the intern getting coffee. And I had had a couple of internships where I felt like I was just getting coffee for people, that type of environment. And at Mercy Corps, I was asked to do, you know, I was asked to draft policy briefs. I was asked to draft your colleague letters. I was asked to do analysis on foreign assistance and the proportion to like grants versus contracts of this certain type of programming. I was asked to write memos on 
all kinds of things. So it was really intellectually stimulating, which was a real welcome change. Like I was completely thrown out of my comfort zone, but I was really enjoying it because I really felt like I was doing things that were valuable to the team. Well, in a moment, I want to talk with you about the actual internship program that you managed Mm -hmm. for the policy team. Yeah. But before we get there, do you think you have any greater insight now into how to how to decipher if an internship is going to be busy work or substance? Do you think there's any advice that you could offer young people who are looking for an internship to help them figure that out before they find themselves sitting and twiddling their thumbs and wasting several months of their life that they could have spent in a more constructive way? I think the interview process is really important. And I think that's really a a good way for you to ask questions and for you to kind of figure out what the day-to-day looks like, because a hiring manager should be able to tell you what your day is going to look like. And I mean, that being said, like all of your days might not look like that. I would say though, that just because an internship may be like twiddling your thumbs or something, there's always a, always something of value that you can get out of that, whether it's learning that you never want to do that again, or whether it's just being exposed and having the opportunity to like meet, meet different people and expand your network. And I don't think that you should necessarily turn down an internship just because you don't think that the work is going to be the most meaningful because it's about looking at the long term, about looking at how that internship is going to set you up for something else. And so like someone's going to look at your resume while this, these three months or four months like may not be the most engaging, someone's going to look at your resume in three to four months and say like, oh, well, at least they have experience, had an internship, and then you just got to sell it. So you don't regret those other internships? No. They weren't so meaningful? No, not at all. I mean, I think that they were good opportunities. I think that, I mean, honestly, like, I think that I still had a lot of learning to do. I thought that I, you know, recent graduate, like I knew everything. And I, I think that I still had a lot of learning to do and I was still pretty green. And so I don't think that they were invaluable experiences at all. So I want to go back and now add in that other context. Sure. Of having been one of the people, I wasn't your supervisor when you were an intern, but I will tell you what impressed me and our colleagues was your work ethic, can-do attitude. Of course, the things we were asking you to do, we we knew were going to be pushing you out of your comfort zone, but you weren't afraid. You may have been afraid. I mean, <laughs> my God, I hope you were. <laughs> but you weren't so afraid mm-hmm. that you didn't try and you gave it a really good effort. And more often than not, Emily, wow, you, you impressed us because you're smart you applied the skills and the knowledge that you had and you did research and you tried to figure it out. And that is why when there was an opportunity that none of us could have been aware of, and that was the woman who was my executive assistant slash office administrator said that she was going to go to graduate school, that you were the leading candidate for that job and why you were eventually hired for that job. So you cannot discount the fact that somebody is there after five o'clock or after six o'clock to get the job done. Not because you're just sitting there staring at a computer screen, but the fact is we are watching. And if someone is really dedicated 
and really serious about doing their best work. They're not like Fred Flintstone. And I hope that isn't too, like, if you all are even aware of who Fred Flintstone is. <laughs> but, you know, I know who Fred Flintstone is. Okay, you know. <laughs> but, like, when, that, when the quitting bell sounds yeah. that you're out the door, because we are impressed by that. And even if it doesn't land you a job at the organization, because that was completely out of nowhere out of nowhere but you want your boss you want your other folks in the office to write you a recommendation that's the currency yep to give you an excellent recommendation that will help you when you are applying for that paid job yep I guess, you know, maybe because executive assistant and those entry-level jobs are often the way that a new college graduate gets their foot in the door. Mm -hmm. Can you talk, Emily, about that and maybe the frustrations of having to do that? I mean, you were in a very unusual situation and that you literally wore two hats. Yeah. Which doesn't happen very often, but that was the job as it stood and you did it to the best of your ability. Yeah. I mean, I think the toughest transition from being an intern to being a paid person was that the interns got all of the cool work and I got none of the cool work. So, you know, I had gone from this like intellectually stimulating job where I was writing policy briefs and I like felt like I was really important to scheduling meetings and fixing the coffee pot and fixing the stapler to these very like logistics based tasks that I was kind of like, wow, this was a total 360 and not at all what my education had prepared me for. So that was a bit of a challenge. I think the expectations as an intern are completely different than the expectations as a staff member. And I think that when you are an assistant to an executive, there's a whole other layer of expectations because your job is to make your executive look really good. So your executive wants to know like when her meetings are and wants to be prepared for all of those things. And, and you're doing expense reports. Right. And it's and like, you know, travel it's, planning and Yeah. So you know, it's a lot of different things. And it's your executive being saying, like, I need you to do research on X, Y, and Z. I've got this meeting later. Help prep me. So it's layering in all of those things. And then on top of that, I had the other kind of role which was managing the office. So it was making sure that on a very basic level, making sure that the printer worked, figuring out office space because we had too many people and not enough desks. That was a big shift. And it was hard. It was it was not easy. And I think I think that you can attest that my first year was a little bit of a challenge. It yeah. was like getting it was, you know, getting growing the confidence, rhythm. getting yeah. in the rhythm and getting the confidence to be able to assert myself in a meeting and tell my boss when she needed to be somewhere. That was that was really challenging for me. What do you wish you had known when you were in college that you would like to share with other Gen Z millennial types about the way that an office functions and specifically managing up and what that means and managing down as you move up in your own career. I can't emphasize enough how important it is to like have a can-do attitude. That's something I see with our interns. Like The ones that are most successful are the ones who are really eager and willing to learn. They have opinions and they, ta- they have complete and total permission to speak, but they're not telling me that I'm wrong. It's a conversation. I think that that's the most 
important. That's the kind of the trait actually that sets you up the most because in any situation, you can learn from it. Whether it's learning how to manage up and telling your boss, you know, what she needs to be doing or whether it's learning about how to do a completely different task that will serve you well. But break it down. What is managing up? For me, it's being able to tell my boss what I need her to do. It's being able to prioritize my workload, being able to prioritize, you know, like what needs to happen this week? What are the deadlines that are this week? And asking you And asking and saying, hey, I need you to do X, Y, and Z so that I can accomplish my job. And then reminding them over whether it needs to be over and over or just keeping them on the on the right path so that they can accomplish all the things that their broader strategic goals. That's, I mean, that's what it kind of means to me. Mm-hmm. I know personally, one of the things that I never did that I wish I had, which is oftentimes your boss will overload you with a ton of stuff to do. Right. And then I wouldn't ask, so what do you want me to do first? And when do you want that by? So that what happens is you get all these mixed signals because you're doing what you think is the priority, but you can't read their mind. And then I might've delivered something that actually they didn't want me to do until the following week, right? And so it's like having an open channel of communication. communication. Yep. So that you have a conversation with your boss and you're very clear about what it is they want you to do and by when and helping you to prioritize so that you don't get wrapped around the axle. Yeah, it's doing that over and over and over again. I remember at one point being told that I needed to have something done by XYZ date and I think getting it done, but then putting something else off because I needed to get this done by XYZ date. And I think you told me you're like, oh, I didn't actually need it then. I just gave you a date because you asked for one. It's like, well, oh, okay. But it's And then it's, that other thing was something that I really want. Probably. Yeah, I don't know. And I say that your supervisor should be on the hook too, because I clearly didn't give you but it's clear that, guidance. I mean, it's that like learning to have a conversation with your boss, even though it's it's hard. I am a very like hierarchical person and I my boss is right, my boss is right, my boss is right, and I just need to do what my boss says. But then it's like learning how to navigate that situation so that you can talk to your boss. And it's not in a way that's like you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You're doing things incorrectly or being like accusatory. It's just being able to talk. Mm-hmm. And clarify. Right. Clarify. So Emily, I mentioned that you ran the Mercy Corps policy team's internship program. Mm -hmm. What were you looking for in the applicants? What were kind of the, they must have this? I mean, first and foremost, you must have a cover letter. I think that is my biggest pet peeve. The application guidelines were clear. It was you need a resume and you need a cover letter or a statement of interest, whatever, and optional was a writing sample. I saw so many people apply with just a resume and you have failed to meet the minimum requirements. So you're already out and you've just wasted your time. You've wasted my time. Like goodbye. For every internship that we posted, we posted three times a year. I would get upwards of 90 applications for two positions. You need criteria and failing to meet the minimum requirements is a great way to figure out who actually wants it and who doesn't. So beyond that, on your resume and in your cover letter, I look for kind of a story. I look to see that you've had relatively consistent interests or you can clearly identify sometimes we'll have people apply that aren't 
maybe aren't like international studies majors or aren't like politics majors, but they can clearly articulate why this internship is of interest and of value to their career. And that's really important to me. And it shows me that you're thinking we need interns who can think because as we mentioned earlier, this internship requires you to think quite a bit and it requires you to be able to clearly communicate. So that's something that I look for. And then in the interview, I looked for interns who are energetic, who show that they wanted to learn, that they had an open mind. I think those were the things that were most important to me because you can do your best to teach and mentor as much as you can. But if no, if they don't want to learn, then you're wasting your, I'm wasting my time and my team is wasting their time. So that was something that was really, really, really important to me. What about where they went to school? I came from a school that is very much not well-known. I feel like someone took a chance on me hiring me because I was not a known quantity. I didn't come from this like super prestigious pedigree. So I looked for students who came from places that weren't the usual suspects because I think that DC has so much to offer and we can and should, you know, lift up people with different backgrounds. I think that that's quite important because I don't think that DC should just be this like exclusive mix of students from like SICE, Georgetown and GW. I think that that's really exclusive. And I don't think that's like the behavior that we should model, especially in a place where our mission is an inclusive mission. Can you share some of the questions you asked people that uh, were kind of your go-tos for Weeding yeah. out the yeah. So actually, I had a like a list of questions that I asked everyone because I thought that that would level the playing field. And whoever kind of answered my questions in the best way, that was an easy way to determine who I wanted to hire and who I didn't want to hire. So I asked students about their background, what they've studied, kind of give me their thirty second story. I asked about their experience with research and writing, what writing products they were most proud of, and why they were most proud of them. I asked how this was gonna this internship was going to feed into their five year career goals, like what do you hope to get out of it? And how is that going to help build your career for the next step? And this was kind of actually a particularly hard question for interns to answer. But what do you want your internship to look like? Like if you could choose your day-to-day activities, what would you be doing? And then I would tell them about the internship and see if that like resonated with them. They weren't particularly long interviews, Mm -hmm. but those were some of the questions. And what have you learned about hiring from going through that process because I know you've had some like superstar interns and you've also had a couple of duds. <laughs> yeah. I mean as an intern, like you have room to grow. Like you don't have to be the perfect candidate when you walk in the door. You shouldn't know everything because you're at an internship to learn. It's supposed to be a learning opportunity. So I felt confident about the interns that ended up being our most successful interns. And they were again the ones that were energetic and showed a willingness to learn. I think that was Honestly, like I could have cared less about, you know, writing products that you're most proud of, but I wanted you to see that you were proud of a writing product that you had produced because that meant that you cared about something and you worked really hard on it and you felt passionately about it. And that's what I want you to come to work and feel passionately. Like we're a mission-driven organization. Like you should feel passionately about the work that you're doing every day. So Emily, now that you've been out in the working world for the last five years, Mm -hmm. if you could go back to McDaniel and be back on campus and what are the things that you might study or the activities that you might have engaged in or whatnot that would have better prepared you for working in the policy world? For those people who are listening to this saying, yes, Emily, you have sold me on working in international development as a policy advisor. What do you think they could be doing now to enhance their skill sets so that they're 
better position to, to land a job at an organization like Mercy Corps? I probably would have taken a class or two in American politics because I did not take a single class in American politics. And I really regret that. On the international development side, I would have taken French. I really regret that I did not take French because so much of the work of our agency is in French-speaking countries. And that kind of limits my effectiveness when I go to those countries. You did study Arabic. I did study, I did study Arabic. I think American politics, maybe like a math class or two. Really? Why? Maybe. You know, I feel like statistics is an important thing that you should know how to do. Maybe not for this job in particular, but for jobs later down the road. And just so that you can look at a data set and not be terrified of it. I can't say that I can look at a data set and not be terrified of it. Economics. I think I, I started to take economics, but I ran out of time. And so I would have done that. But other than that, you know, I feel pretty good about my undergraduate experience. And I mean, I think like there's only so far that the classes that you take can get you. You can do the best you can with the resources that you have, you can do the model UNs, you can do, and they're great and they build up your network and that's really important. But I think as much as I hate to say it, like your network does matter when you're trying to break into this space. And so it matters a little bit less about the classes that you take and matters a little bit more about how you can utilize the network that you've built over those four years of college and those internships that you've done, the extracurriculars that you've done to kind of catapult you into a job. I think that's really important. So Emily. Yes. Thank you for making time to have coffee with me today. I really appreciate it. And you just... I just finished my coffee. Finished your coffee. <laughs> Cue the empty cup. I really enjoyed hearing. And I actually learned learned some things about you that I didn't know. There you go. like to keep it interesting. <laughs> and I would just say to our listeners, let us know. Let me know what you think of this interview. What questions I could be thinking of for future interviews. Please subscribe. And thanks, as always, thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.